As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, obviously, uh, we've done a lot of episodes about the semiconductor industry, about chips. <laughs> There's one specific, I guess I would say, subcomponent of the story that people are like, oh, you guys got to do that. You guys got to do that, which we have yet to hit so far. You say there's one thing that we have yet to do, but I have a feeling like <laughs> this is the endless semiconductor series. And as soon as we finish this episode, we're going to discover some other hidden component of the semiconductor sure. supply chain. And that's going to lead to another episode. But yes, you're right. Um, there is one sort of big uh, elephant, big semiconductor thing in the room, and that is a company called ASML. Not to be confused with ASMR, which I always seem to do <laughs> asml but hopefully for like a certain kind of person listening to an hour <laughs> of people talking about chips is a type of uh for them asmr so maybe we kill two birds with one stone but yes asml you know one of the things that we establish in thinking about how these sort of the chip ecosystem works maybe part of our characterization is we taiwan semiconductor the biggest contract fabrication uh, company in the world. I think we sort of think of it as like they're the final boss, right, in chips. Mm -hmm. Like in the end, they're like the central bank of chips. Their capacity kind of almost dictates chip capacity overall. There's some other companies that make uh, chips, including Intel and Global Foundries, but uh, TSMC is the big one. But TSMC has to buy equipment from others, too. You know, not no one is completely self-sufficient in this industry. And TSMC is a huge client or a huge purchaser of equipment made by this company. It's a Dutch company, ASML. Yeah. So you mentioned that it's Dutch. And this is the other thing. I mean, in addition to not really understanding what this company does mm. or the type of equipment it's actually making for semiconductor manufacturers like TSMC, the other thing I don't really get about it is why is it a Dutch company? Because the one thing I know about it is it has its origins in the U.S., um, I think in the, you know, like 1980s, it sort of came out of the collapse of a bunch of U.S. lithography firms or something like that. And yet now it's a Dutch company that has this enormous yeah. role in the global supply chain. It's squarely like kind of crowning, like it's sort of like a kingmaker for semiconductor yeah. technology or expertise. And I don't know, I just have so many questions already. I know we haven't even started. 
Yeah, I know. I have a million questions, too. We'll get started in just a second. But, you know, you mentioned the oddity of it being Dutch. Uh, there's another element here. And I, I don't you know, I feel like reluctant to like talk in like cliches or stereotypes. <laughs> but I don't really think. I know that's not true. No, it is true. Of like Northern Europe or Europe in general as being like this, like cutting edge, high tech hotbed for anything. When I think about tech, I think about Silicon Valley. Maybe more on the consumer end, but also like, you know, obviously a, a long history. I mean, it's Silicon Valley for a reason. And I think about uh, various parts of East Asia. And when I think about the engineering prowess in Europe, A, I don't mm. think about tech in Europe that much. And when I do think about engineering prowess in Europe, it's typically I'm thinking more on the sort of like uh, bigger industrial engineering. So a company like Siemens yeah. or companies that are really good at public uh, public works or trains or whatever. And I don't think of Europe as being a hotbed of, say, semiconductor innovation. I know there's probably countless like counterexamples. I'm just sort of thinking like it doesn't fit into my mental models of this stuff. So it is interesting that it's Dutch. Well, also, just when you think about the European market, like you start thinking about the biggest companies there. And yeah, sure. Stuff like Siemens, LVMH, like luxury good makers. But ASML is absolutely massive. And like just looking at the share price chart, it has had a huge, huge run up over the past year or so. I mean, basically since the global pandemic, much like a lot of other semiconductor stocks. But I mean, amazing run up. A huge market cap, yeah. and yet it's sort of like this company that outside of the semiconductor sphere, it, it doesn't seem to get that much attention. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's like a it's like a third uh, over a three hundred billion dollar market cap. It is uh, it's it's uh, one of the biggest companies in the world, um, but not many people know about it. Far from a household name. Okay, so we have a million questions, so we got to get right into this discussion, and we have the perfect guest to tell us about this company. We're going to be speaking with Chris Miller. He's an assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. And he is the author of a forthcoming book that will be out next year entitled Chip War, The Struggle for the World's Most Critical Technology. And he can answer all of our questions about ASML. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Chris, what is lithography? You know, I think like this is one of these questions that's like the word gets it's probably come up on like every episode. And I pride myself on never being too embarrassed to like ask a question. But I think I actually was too embarrassed to ask uh, this on some of the other episodes. I'm like, mm-hmm, yep, lithography. What's lithography? So if you want to make a semiconductor device, you take a slab of silicon, you cover it with uh, chemicals called photoresists, which are chemicals that react uh, with light, and then you shoot uh, light rays, or now uh, extreme ultraviolet light rays, at the silicon wafer, uh, and the shapes uh, that you shoot at it will form the transistors. So that's that's the simplest version. Now, today... If you buy a new iPhone, the most advanced processor on it will have 10 billion transistors. So you've got to shoot uh, extraordinarily uh, narrow uh, wavelengths of light Uh, through masks uh, that create these shapes on the silicon wafer. Uh, And the masks uh, need to be able to uh, project all of these shapes onto the wafer. So making this possible at the scale of 10 billion transistors uh, per chip is, is what ASML does. Wait, how many per chip? Sorry, what, did you say 10 billion per chip? That's right. A, a new um, Apple uh, processor in your iPhone will have 10 billion transistors per chip. Uh, some chips that go into data centers will have 
uh, more than that. Uh, but the scale of transistors that we produce in any given year is is more than the scale of all goods produced by all companies and all other industries and all of world history. Wow. It's a tremendous number. So could you maybe describe where ASML sits in the sort of ecosystem of the semiconductor industry? So I, I gather it doesn't seem to have much competition, but like, who does it actually supply? And also, who, who does it not supply? Like, are there people out there who try to do this on their own? In the early days of the chip industry, companies built lithography machines in-house. Uh, so Texas Instruments would have had its own lithography machine division, IBM. But today, the machines are so complex and expensive that there's just a couple of companies that make lithography machines in general, uh, and just one company, ASML, that's able to make EUV lithography machines, which are the most advanced type. Anyone who operates a, a chip fab, a facility where chips are made, has to buy lithography equipment. Uh, and so for the most cutting-edge chips, you've got no choice but to buy from ASML. This is fascinating. So whether we're talking about Intel doing its own chips or TSMC or anyone else, and we've talked with other people, we talked to Stacey Razgan of Bernstein and about the, the nanometer wars and all of them, if you're doing cutting edge manufacturing, you are a customer of ASML. That's right. That's right. For the most cutting edge lithography machines, ASML is the only supplier for slightly less cutting edge machinery. Uh, Nikon of Japan is also uh, a competitor of ASML's. Uh, they have a duopoly for anything that's not uh, the most cutting edge. So what is it about the technology that makes it, I, I guess, so proprietary to ASML? Like, how did they get into a position where they basically control it? And what is it that they've been able to do that others haven't? So the, the, the challenge with EUV lithography in particular and lithography in general is that you've got to uh, manage a supply chain uh, that is extraordinarily complex. ASML has got around 4,000 suppliers, and many of these suppliers uh, are producing equipment that only they can produce. So just to give you a couple of examples, the, um, the mirrors within ASML's uh, lithography machines, the EUV machines, are the flattest structure that humans have ever made, the flattest man-made structure in the universe. Uh, and when you go through the list of uh, materials and uh, components that you need to produce an EUV lithography machine, there are multiple parts of the system that are the most this or the, the most <laughs> that. Uh, and managing that is an extraordinarily complex business. Uh, if you talk to people at ASML, they'll say our biggest engineering challenge is not actually engineering any particular part, but engineering the supply chain, making sure that all of our suppliers are producing things so that they all fit together, they all work together, they arrive on time. And it's hard enough to do that with uh, basic machinery, but when you're uh, trying to manipulate uh, individual atoms, uh, which is what ASML is able to do, uh, it's even more complex. Tracy, I already love this episode so much. <laughs> I don't know like how many things like I've learned already in five minutes. And then the fact that like it's, it's also a supply, like, Okay, obviously there's a chip supply chain, but then the idea that the most advanced technology within the chip is actually itself a supply chain, I'm just like, I'm already obsessed with this. But where do they, so, okay, you mentioned that for sort of like, okay, for the very cutting edge, there's just ASML. For slightly less cutting edge, uh, uh, Nikon, did you say Nikon? That's right. Nikon in Japan, they're also in the game. Do other players aspire to be cutting edge, or is there some barrier that just basically makes it so that no one else is really trying to get it, uh, be at that level? In the 1990s, which is when investment in EUV began, uh, Nikon made a choice not to try to commercialize EUV technology. 
the, the first physics papers on EUV actually came out of uh, a Japanese university. Uh, so the, there's plenty of optics expertise in Japan, uh, but ASML was the only company that was willing to bet on EUV from the 1990s forward and capable of raising the funds and uh, assembling the expertise. Uh, so right now, if someone wanted to replicate uh, what EUVs, uh, what ASML's done with EUV, it would take them a decade and, and billions and billions of dollars in investment. And, and because the suppliers that work with ASML have exclusivity agreements with ASML, ASML has invested in some of its key uh, suppliers. Uh, it, it's just basically impossible for anyone to break into um, this without replicating their entire separate supply chain. It would take a decade wow. to do. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So maybe this is a good place to start talking about the history of the company and where it actually came from. And I think that'll help us like understand some of these dynamics and how it built up a competitive edge versus its, you know, non-existent or very few um, competitors. But my understanding is this sort of like sprung up out of U.S. military technology of some sort. Can you start like at the beginning? How like I guess this goes back to Joe's question. What is lithography? Why is the U.S. Army interested in it? And how did it play into ASML's creation story? When the transistor was uh, first invented in the late 1940s uh, in Bell Labs in New Jersey, it was uh, predominantly used in military devices for its its first commercialization. Uh, and there was a, uh, a scientist in a U.S. Army lab named Jay Lathrop in the 1950s who was trying to find out how to min miniaturize transistors, produce them uh, smaller and smaller so they could be put in uh, smaller devices. One day, he and his, uh, his assistant uh, realized that they could use photoresist chemicals, these chemicals that react with light, to create shapes on uh, on the silicon and germanium that they were working with. And, and they turned their microscope that they were using in the lab upside down. Uh, so normally a microscope lets you see something small and it expands the, the image for your eye. They did the opposite. They uh, had a, a shape that was large and were able to project that in a smaller version by using an upside down microscope. And with that, they filed the first patent for photolithography and coined the phrase uh, in the 1950s. Over the, the next couple of decades, photolithography was used both by chip makers who were making their own machines in-house, uh, and then eventually a couple of specialized photolithography companies emerged in Connecticut and Massachusetts. They were defense contractors primarily, but realized they could use their specialized optics, things that they'd honed in spy satellites and military equipment like that for the semiconductor industry. And so until the mid-1980s, the center of the photolithography industry was in New England. But those companies faced hard times in the 1980s. They were 
poorly managed. Uh, and the 1980s were a time when the Japanese chip industry in general was rising and Nikon, as well as Canon, the two camera companies, began investing in photolithography. Uh, for a time in the 80s and 90s, they were uh, the dominant companies in the industry, which the U.S. was quite worried about, uh, worried about being too reliant on Japan at a time of uh, commercial and also uh, geopolitical tension. And so U.S. Uh, chip makers began turning to ASML, um, both to diversify their supplier base, but also because because ASML was able to produce uh, very high quality equipment as well in, in the 1990s. In the mid-1990s, ASML was the only company willing to take the gamble on EUV. And since that point, it's become the, the dominant firm in the industry. Have we, I just, EUV, uh, have we established extreme ultraviolet? I don't know if we, if, I just want to make sure uh, we've established what EUV stands for. Can I just ask, so can you explain again, what's the difference between um, extreme ultraviolet and I guess non-extreme ultraviolet? So over the past couple of decades, as we've tried to make ever smaller uh, devices and ever smaller features on silicon wafers, we've begun to use uh, different and, and smaller wavelengths of light. And so extreme ultraviolet has a wavelength of 13.5 nanometers. It's the smallest wavelength of light that we've been able to uh, use in, in mass production. So if you rewind several decades ago, we were using larger wavelengths of light that were uh, incapable of producing the, the small feature sizes on silicon wafers that we demand today. One of the reasons why I think the chip episodes, well, why we've done so many chip episodes and why they're why they keep resonating. I, I think there's a few things. I mean, one is there's the chip shortage. And it should be noted that the shortage is actually more at the is not really at the advanced level. It's a lot of cheap chips, et cetera. But we're starting to the the uh, the chip shortage that uh, relates to automobiles, et cetera, has sort of brought people a lot of awareness about lack of domestic U.S. manufacturing capacity. I think another reason people care about chips is obviously just the general like explosion of chip demand. Even where there isn't an acute shortage, there's chips uh, and everything. And then I think the other thing that makes it sort of an interesting story right now is that at least in the U.S. and probably elsewhere around the world, there is a rethinking about the role of state capacity in and um, state investment into certain space. And of course, as we all know, the chip industry, and as you just talked about, the chip industry overall really was sort of born out of defense. So like sort of the ultimate in uh, state investing and government spending. And at various times throughout U.S. history, at least, we seem to go in waves of how much the government wants to get in to protect the chip sector, to invest in the chip sector, to build and bolster a homegrown uh, chip sector. You mentioned uh, the sort of stress and tension with the Japanese or reliance on Japanese companies in the 80s and 90s. That seemed to uh, produce a wave of um, sort of uh, defensive investment, perhaps it could be characterized. Talk to us about how ASML fits into that in terms of, you know, when we talked about, say, the history of TSMC, that was clearly in part, it was a very like public sort of private venture. There was uh, the government backed it up under the condition that it could raise private uh, foreign money as well. Talk to us about the role of like public money in the creation of ASML. 
So ASML emerged uh, first as a division of, of Philips, the Dutch electronic company, um, and it was spun out in 1984 uh, at a time when the European chip industry was uh, relatively small as a player on the world stage. It was the U.S. and Japan at the time that were the biggest players, right. and, and there were a variety of Dutch and European Union programs to support R&D at ASML. But for ASML in particular, actually the, the most important government support was from the U.S. government, uh, because oh. in, in the 1990s, when the investments in EUV were being made, uh, Intel, which at the time was the, the industry leader in chip making, uh, decided to take a big bet on EUV being the next uh, lithography technology and uh, established a consortium of a number of private chip firms and a number of U.S. national labs, uh, the Lawrence Livermore, for example, that would work together to produce prototype EUV machines. And so the, the technology that uh, we use today in ASML systems really comes from this work with U.S. national labs. It was largely funded by industry, but using the scientists there. And at the time, uh, there was some interest in trying to turn the technology over to a U.S. company to produce and commercialize on the grounds that it came largely out of U.S. national labs. But there was no U.S. lithography firm at the time that was seen as a, a credible candidate to commercialize it. The options were Nikon or ASML. Given the tensions with Japan, ASML was seen as the, the least risky option. And also they'd had a, a long uh, track record of producing quality machines. And so we've got this strange situation now where a lot of the core technology in this machinery that's assembled uh, in the Netherlands actually comes out of California. And indeed, uh, ASML has actually bought a number of companies over the course of uh, the past couple of decades in California as well. So there's a lot of U.S. technology in, in ASML systems, uh, partially funded by the U.S. government. Could you imagine something like that happening today? Like, I just think the environment is so different. And the idea of like the U.S. government funding a technology and then deciding like, well, OK, I guess the, the best company to actually make this stuff is over in the Netherlands. So we'll just let them do it and give up like a key component of a highly competitive supply chain. It just seems so, so <laughs> unlikely in the current environment. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. On the one hand, you do hear a lot of conversation uh, in Washington, D.C. about joint R&D project with allied countries. And, and in some ways, this is a perfect example of this. I, I think the other thing is that ASML is a Dutch company. But if you look at the components of their EV machines, for example, they're sourcing from all around Europe, all around the U.S. and, and really worldwide. Uh, so to describe them as, as a Dutch company misses the fact that you can't produce an EUV system with, for example, the light source, uh, which is produced by an ASML subsidiary in San Diego. So they're a Dutch company, yes, but they're really a, hmm. a, a global supply chain that's focused on, on the U.S. and Europe. So this is interesting because it, you, you mentioned that, OK, at the time that the technology was sort of they decided ASML would be the most credible entity to commercialize this uh, sort of U.S. funded technology. There was this view that, OK, it was better them than a, a, a Japanese player, in part because we already had anxiety about our reliance on Japanese chips at the time for other uh, other chips, including DRAM. How much are the same dynamics essentially in play when people think about the geopolitics of chips? Obviously, one of the things that, you know, we talk about anxiety about how much we rely on Taiwan. There's perhaps some anxiety about the domestic homegrown chip industry, although China seems to be several years behind in terms of mainland chip technology. How much does it still sort of benefit everyone, this idea that this crucial component player is not part of either in U.S. or Asia? 
That's an interesting question. I, I think certainly if you're a, a, a Chinese customer of ASML, you're pleased that it's not a U.S. company. But the reality is that if, if the U.S. wanted to use export controls to constrict ASML sales to China, that wouldn't hmm. be very difficult to do. ASML already doesn't send its EUV machines to China. In theory, that's because of Dutch restrictions. In reality, it's because of U.S. pressure on the Netherlands to impose these restrictions. Hmm. Uh, and there is discussion um, in, in Washington and Japan elsewhere uh, about whether there ought to be stricter limits on the type of lithography machines you can sell to China. And legally, there's, there's nothing that would really stop the U.S. from imposing those restrictions unilaterally. Is, is the concern that if those machines were shipped to China that they would be able to, uh, that would accelerate China's semiconductor uh, capabilities or that literally having them in Chinese hands would then maybe allow them to be more easily sort of deconstructed and reverse engineered. And that would be a big knowledge transfer. No, it's the former. Uh, I think if you just receive an ASML machine, you have no idea how to produce it. it, It's that the the more advanced lithography machines you have, the more advanced shipmaking you have, the stronger the Chinese ecosystem is. So how big of an impediment is not having access to ASML's EUV technology to Beijing's like overall semiconductor development drive? Like, is it such an essential piece of technology that it basically means they're on a completely different footing to something like TSMC? That's right. For now, there's there's no viable way of producing the most advanced chips with the smallest features without using UV. There are some some scientists who think there might theoretically be ways to get around it, but for the next decade, uh, there's there's just no choice but to use ASML's machinery if you want to uh, produce the smallest chips. So, what are you know? Let's talk a little bit more about ASML's constraints. Everyone this year is becoming aware of like you know constraints, and there's only so much foundry capacity in the world at any given time. The entities that wanted to buy cheap chips that go into cars sort of got shut out because they canceled their orders for a while, and now they're scrambling, and it might be years before they could catch up again. So we know that that's constraints. How strained is ASML's? own capacity to grow and where do they face? Is it just in the complexity of the supply chain? Is it in raw materials? Like what are their constraints? It's mostly in the supply chain complexity. So ASML last year shipped 31 EUV machines. So we're talking uh, getting one or two more machines out of the out of their production process is something that's hard to do because each of their suppliers uh, is is similarly constrained in the ability to ramp up manufacturing. You know, this isn't high volume manufacturing when you're producing 31 machines a year, and because their supply chain has so many specialized parts solely for their machines, their suppliers are producing uh, 31 or so of the components uh, needed wow. each year, uh, and so there's just no way to ramp. How many 300 billion dollar companies <laughs> in the world make 31 machines? Produce 31, make 31 units a year. So we're talking like each one is like half a billion or something. Well, there's 31 of the of, of EUV machines. They, they yeah, oh, also yeah. sell some of the older oh, equipment, okay. but they, they sold 395 units in total last year. So okay. it's still a and tiny number of units. It's still not very much. How much is it if you or I wanted to pull together and buy a EUV machine? Like what do they, what do they retail for? Average, uh, average revenue per EUV machine last year was around 140 million euros. Got it. Okay. So this is something that comes up a lot in our supply chain discussions, but like, how does ordering 
actually work? And is there preference given to certain customers over others? Like, you know, if one company wants to buy an EUV machine, I imagine there there are plenty of other companies that want to do the same thing for limited supply. How does ASML actually make the decisions about who gets allocated what? Also, how long does it take? Like, what's the waiting time to actually get one of these things? Oh, yeah. 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 We don't really know the details as to how ASML decides to allocate. The number of potential customers for a $150 million machine is, is limited. I mean, it's a half dozen potential customers in the world who'd be realistically looking to buy one. But if you look at the main customers, it's TSMC, which has around half of operating UV machines in its own fabs, Samsung, Intel, a handful of others. And there's almost certainly a premium that TSMC has paid for uh, getting so many machines uh, available. If, if a new company came online and wanted to buy machines, uh, they'd face a, a wait of at least a couple of years because capacity has been um, purchased in advance. Intel has said it's going to be the first customer of the next generation EUV machine, uh, which will be online around 2025. Uh, presumably, it's paid something for the right to get the first iteration, but we don't know any of the details. Yeah, speaking of Intel, and I want to back up to something we talked about earlier. Why was this never part of Intel's own ambitions? Because, you know, over the years, I guess the degree to which uh, Intel has wanted to be an IP first company or a manufacturing company, it waxes and wanes. So at one point it was a manufacturing powerhouse. Then it sort of scaled back that it was more of an IP company. And that's sort of the anxiety these days. Now they seem to want to get back into being uh, manufacturing. And the new CEO has made a point of like, we are not going to uh, give up on being a manufacturing powerhouse. Why was lithography or advanced lithography never part of the Intel strategy? Well, when Intel was founded, it was it was founded at a time where you could already buy lithography equipment on the open market. So they they always decided they were going to produce ships, but buy lithography machines from suppliers. Over their fifty years, they've been one of the biggest buyers of lithography equipment in the industry, and the development of EV actually wouldn't have happened without Intel. Uh, when Andy Grove was still the Intel CEO in the early 1990s, uh, he made the first big bet on the development of EV lithography, putting up uh, $200 million in the early 1990s to begin to develop this on the grounds, not that Intel was ever going to produce lithography equipment, but that it would eventually need EUV to produce the most advanced chips. And even as, as recently as 2012, uh, when ASML needed to raise more capital to, to fund its development of EUV, it went to Intel, TSMC, and Samsung. And Intel was the biggest investor in ASML at the time, putting in um, uh, several billion dollars to help fund ASML's development. So until quite recently, it seemed like Intel would be the biggest user of EUV lithography machines. It's only in the past couple of years that Intel decided uh, in what looks to be a, a mistake in hindsight that EUV wouldn't be ready uh, by around now, where TSMC made the opposite bet that EUV would be ready for high volume manufacturing. And TSMC was proved right, uh, which is why it's done so well the past couple of years. And Intel was proven wrong, which I think most observers think explains some of the manufacturing problems it's had in recent years by uh, not using EUV and trying to use older versions of lithography to produce its most advanced ships. Now Intel is uh, changing its 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 plans. It's, it says it's investing very heavily in UV, but it's going to take a couple of years for them to uh, learn how to actually use UV in high volume manufacturing. Wait, so I have a slightly related question, although maybe it's sort of reversed, I guess. But like, given ASML's competitive edge in producing a key technological component for semiconductors, 
could they ever have just gone into making semiconductors themselves? Like if they have a monopoly on this technology, no one can do it as well as them. Like why not just start making the finished product yourself? Well, to, to make a chip, you not only need lithography, which is one of the key steps, but there are other steps as well. You need to be able to deposit films of materials um, with uh, with atomic level precision. There's There are different companies, Applied Materials, for example, in California that make that type of equipment. Uh, you need measurement equipment that can measure uh, individual uh, atomic level errors uh, in your final chips to make sure uh, you understand uh, what, what errors you have. That's a different set of companies that makes that equipment. Um, so there's a, a lot of different specialized equipment that you need to make chips. The cost of a, a new fab that, for example, TSMC will build, more than half of that cost is the equipment that goes in it. And ASML and its lithography machines are a critical part of that, but that's far from enough um, to make chips. And ASML's specialty is really solely in lithography uh, and not at all in deposition or etching or the other types of equipment that you need to, to actually make finished chips. This this point is so fascinating to me, like to think about like, okay, ASML, among the many extraordinary things, they also lay claim to having the flattest service in the world. And presumably in order to get the flattest service in the world, there's some technology, as you sort of just mentioned, that has to be able to measure uh, flatness and actually measure if the service is not flat. And it sort of speaks to like, you know, we think about like in the U.S. these days, and there is a, there's a bill in D.C., that's designed to invest in, uh, designed to bolster U.S. capacity. And again, that's part of why we keep having these discussions, because there is this uh, effort underway. It's kind of bipartisan. The bill might pass, it might not pass. But there's this sort of bipartisan interest to uh, bolster domestic capacity. But I don't even know what that means sometimes, because obviously, as you described, the internationalization and complexity of the chip supply chain is so extreme. And as we've talked about with other guests, chips cross borders a million times before they arrive in your uh, Xbox or your iPhone or whatever it is. Like, what does it even mean in your view, just to think about like this question of like expanding domestic capacity in an industry that but that just is so extremely fragmented and international? Yeah, I, th I think the first thing is you got to be specific as to what type of capacity you want to expand, expand domestically. Certainly, the yeah. U.S. could expand production of chips domestically if it wanted to, uh, but that wouldn't have any effect on the reality that there's no way to buy lithography equipment, for example, except from uh, foreign suppliers, either Nikon right. or, or, or ASML. I, I think domestic production is, is, a, is a great thing to support, um, but the thesis that we're going to have a entirely domestically produced supply chain is a fantasy. The only reason that we're able to produce ships with such small features is because we're able to take advantage of expertise from companies in, in many different countries around the world. And there's no one in the industry who thinks there's any conceivable future, even if you were to spend a trillion dollars over a decade where you'd get a domestically produced supply chain that's anywhere near as efficient as what we've got now. You know, I think the supply chain risk discussion is often takes place at a 30,000 foot level when what you really need yeah. to look at is what are the specific components you're worried about? Are there specific suppliers you're worried about? And how can you uh, mitigate those specific risks? But just talking about domestic versus foreign production is not nearly specific enough to have any sort of real meaning. So we kind of mentioned this in the intro, but again, one of the themes that comes up repeatedly on these episodes is the idea of supply chains all the way down. So if there's a bottleneck in one thing, there's probably a bottleneck um, in a component 
an even smaller component that leads into that one thing. So if there's a bottleneck in lithography equipment that's impacting semiconductors, I guess my question is, is there a bottleneck in something that goes into the lithography machines or the EUV machines that is preventing ASML from expanding production? It, it certainly could be. We, there's not enough public information about ASML's supply chain to know, and it's very plausible that ASML, despite being real experts at managing the supply chain, doesn't always uh, know. They, they report having around 4,000 suppliers, wow. and all of their suppliers who you speak to will say they ask lots of questions about their suppliers' suppliers. Uh, but the reality is that there are you know, multiple orders of magnitude more suppliers of their suppliers. And so tracing them all down the chain is, is basically impossible. So what ASML tries to do is understand what are their biggest risks. They've even gone so far as to purchase some of their suppliers to gain more detailed control over managing uh, those risks. But they simply can't know uh, every ultimate component that goes into all of, all of their suppliers' systems. And so that's, that's where the supply chain management just becomes extraordinarily difficult. Now, what they've been really good at, I think, better than their competitors over, over the past couple of decades, is managing that so it hasn't uh, generally caused uh, any sort of serious delays. Uh, and one of the things that they're uh, known for with their customers is, is being able to deliver mostly on time when they promise a machine and, and managing this, uh, which is something that no one else has been able to manage. I think the, the other thing to note is that, you know, when you've got this equipment that is, is, is manipulating individual atoms or uh, trying, to, uh, trying to control the, the, the movement of light with, with extraordinary precision, it's, it's one thing to have a machine that will do this once or twice or sporadically. It's another thing to have a machine that will do this day in, day out, operating uh, 24 hours a day. And, and that's, that's the other thing that ASML has done very successfully over the past couple of years. It was clear as early as the 1990s that it was possible to make a chip with EUV lithography. What, what's been difficult is making millions of chips with EUV lithography and doing it in a cost-effective way. Uh, and, and that's what ASML has really stood out, is that their machines are uh, rarely broken, always functioning. Um, they, they need less, um, less tuning, less cleaning than uh, their competitors. That's what ASML has done uh, quite well. So it's not simply managing the physics, which is very hard, but it's also making sure that you've got this extraordinarily precise physics that's always operating in the exact way you expect it to operate. Yeah, I'm thinking back to one of our discussions with uh, uh, HBS professor Willie She, and I don't remember the math exactly, but if like chip making is like a 7,000 step process, then even, you know, 99.99% execution at each step is insufficient in many cases, because by the time you're down to the 7,000th, you've like basically lost all your chips. I don't remember the exact math, but it is interesting to think about like, building up that comp uh, that competence, not just in can the machine make the chip, but can it make it over and over and over again without uh, without many errors? If you look at uh, ASML's uh, revenue statements, what you'll find is they've got a, a growing share of their uh, revenue coming from services, which is servicing the machines that they operate. They've got staff uh, uh, in TSMC's facilities, in in Samsung, et cetera, making sure that not only the machines are operating, but they're operating uh, exactly according to plan. They're not breaking down. The, the other thing that ASML is 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 doing more of is is managing the software for their machines. And the way that lithography works at, at the scale that we're talking about uh, is that if you want to print a certain picture, say you want to print an X 
uh, you don't reflect a shape of the X on your silicon because the way that light reflects, if you print an X, you'll get something different. So you actually learn over time all of the unexpected errors in light refraction and the errors in the way the chemicals uh, react, and you print the errored version, then it will give you an X. And so there's extraordinarily complex software that uh, now tries to understand uh, how all these different effects work. And you can actually look at the images that ASML is producing to produce a straight line, and it looks nothing like a straight line. And so that, that software as well is something that uh, ASML has been focusing on. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So one of the things that we've talked about, you know, is like the sort of the nanometer wars and the obvious, you know, people talk about Moore's Law and whether it's TSMC or Intel or anyone else, or they're always or AMD maybe, they're always bragging about like making smaller and smaller uh, chips. And one of the things that we learned is that actually the chip companies all defined these measures a little bit differently. So to some extent, it's made up. But how much are the chip manufacturers themselves as they advertise like, okay, we're going to do be able to make a seven nanometer chip or maybe a five nanometer chip or whatever? How much are their timelines? dependent on ASML's, I guess I would say, ASML's own learning curve? And what are, as a sort of monopoly provider, I don't want to say you know monopoly, but as a sole provider of the most cutting-edge technology, what are the forces that drive technological gains for ASML itself? Yeah, if, if you look at how ASML has uh, begun to roll out its EV machines in, into high-volume manufacturing, which has mostly been at TSMC, the learning has happened collectively with ASML and TSMC. So uh, there's been lots of ASML personnel that spend tons of time in Taiwan and vice versa. So you really wouldn't have the rollout of EV over the past couple of years had you not had this collective effort between uh, TSMC and ASML. Uh, and that's that puts other companies at a disadvantage because uh, TSMC knows better than anyone uh, how ASML's machines actually work uh, in practice. And and the high value manufacturing is really crucial to understanding how how these machines work because you don't really know until you've got them in production. And once you've got them in production, you've got 
thousands and thousands and thousands of iterations every single day uh, where you can understand what the errors are, uh, what the idiosyncrasies are of a given machine and begin to correct for them. We talk about technological progress and that, that's important, but in, in some ways the, the, the real challenge here is actually manufacturing progress, understanding what, yeah. the, what, what the idiosyncrasies are at the manufacturing stage and then learning to correct for them. And that's, that's what TSMC has done extraordinarily well at and it's been hand in hand uh, with, with ASML. So I have a sort of markets-oriented question, but, you know, we think of semiconductors as this highly cyclical industry that usually moves in line with whatever is going on with GDP and economic growth. And that hasn't really been the case since the pandemic because we've had, you know, this big boom in demand for electronic goods and it's been a struggle to keep up. But I imagine for a company like ASML, it has also traditionally been considered cyclical and its fortunes are sort of tied to what's going on with the actual semiconductor manufacturers. But just looking at ASML's most recent results, they're forecasting basically like a boom in revenue for the next decade, something they expect to last for 10 years. Is there anything that could sort of knock that revenue cycle at this point in time? Or is this business like, is there such a steep moat around the EUV technology that it's just going to be impossible for anything to um, to hit it? There's there's definitely a steep moat around ASML's technology and they won't be overtaken in EUV or in a, a decade. Deep moat, I should say. I'm mixing my metaphors, <laughs> a, a sorry. Deep and steep, <laughs> an, an impossible to overcome moat. There's no real competition that ASML faces when it comes to EUV. The, the question is, what is going to be demand for EUV machines? And that's a question ultimately of final demand for the most advanced chips. Um, ASML's projections are, are based on uh, the assumption that we've reached a point where there's a secular increase in demand for chips as we have more demand for data center capacity, um, as we have the 5G rollout and new devices that are taking advantage of 5G networks, their bet is that we're going to have more chips per GDP and therefore more demand for ASML. That's a bet that, you know, it's not clear whether that's going to play out. What is clear is that uh, anyone who's producing advanced chips will have no choice but to turn to ASML. And so in some ways, they're perfectly exposed to the fluctuations in the semiconductor industry. Uh, the more chips that are produced, the more machines you need, but the opposite is also true. You kind of hinted at this early on, but the idea that at uh, seven nanometers and below at cutting edge, maybe EUV in theory isn't the only technology. So it's like, okay, if, 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 if EUV is the only technology that can uh, perform the task, then there's no one who can attack ASML. Are there other theoretical approaches for accomplishing the same thing besides EUV? I feel like you hinted at that in the beginning. There are. It's really not a question of science, but of, of manufacturing efficiency. So if you if you take the previous generation of lithography machines, which rather yeah. than 13.5 nanometer light, we're working with 193. It became it was possible over time to produce ever smaller feature sizes on silicon wafers by using a number of tricks. So for example, you can shoot the light through water. And if you think back to high school physics, uh, when light refracts differently through water, uh, that same principle yeah. lets you shoot lithography machines through water and, and carve oh. more specific shapes. You can also use multiple steps um, of lithography to carve specific shapes uh, that are, are more detailed. The challenge is just, can you do this efficiently? Um, so every step of lithography you need uh, adds to the time it takes to produce a wafer, adds to your costs. And so there's no doubt that if you wanted to produce an equivalent of, of one of Apple's new iPhone chips using older generation lithography, you could do it in a lab and do one of them. Uh, 
The question is, can you do a million of them at scale? Ah. Uh, and that seems pretty implausible right now. There's no really credible pathway of, of how you could do that efficiently today. And especially when you project forward five or 10 years, uh, we're expecting to be making ever smaller transistors with uh, more complex shapes on them. And it seems really implausible that you'll, you'll be able to do that using anything besides UV. Chris, is there anything, any other sort of last key things you think we've missed? And that, I mean, I'm sure there's a million things, but other key ideas that you think we need to get across? I think uh, if you're interested in U.S.-China dynamics, yeah. obviously it's a big one of the key reasons why TSMC cut off Huawei uh, in 2020 uh, was because the U.S. could restrict TSMC's access to machinery, uh, of which uh, lithography machinery was a uh, was a key example. So when when the Chinese chip industry looks out and says, "Where are we going to get the tools that we need?" Yeah, the impact of U.S. export controls on companies like ASML, even foreign companies uh, that nevertheless use U.S. technology in their systems, uh, is a, a pretty fundamental roadblock that China faces. And the, the big concern that ASML has right now is that the U.S. is going to expand its restrictions on what you can send to China in terms of uh, lithography machinery. And uh, China's been a big growth market the past couple of years for older generation lithography machines, and so ASML does face a risk that uh, the U.S. expands these restrictions. What inspired you to write a book all about ASML? Because it is like it's not something that comes up necessarily in daily conversation. Um, So I'm just wondering how it sort of came on your radar and what is it that piqued your interest? Well, like the two of you, I, I spent the past couple of years realizing that semiconductors were vastly more important than the average person, including myself, realized, and also uh, far cooler. The technology needed to make them is extraordinary. The fact that we're able to uh, manipulate individual atoms in some cases is extraordinary, and to do it at the scale of, of trillions and trillions of transistors, I thought was 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 really just wild in terms of what, what, what was possible. Uh, and it seemed to me that I took my iPhone uh, for granted. I took my computer for granted. I took the the cloud, which is just a bunch of silicon and, and big data centers in Iowa. I took all that for granted uh, without thinking through how complex it was to uh, actually make these tools work. And I, I think for, for a long time, we've thought of the internet as something out there. We've thought of data processing as something that happens uh, somewhere else, but it's all actually very physical. It's all things being carved uh, onto silicon by uh, shooting light at them and depositing uh, layers of atoms and, and using different chemicals. And the reality that our entire digital world is in fact uh, existing on millions and millions of silicon wafers is something I don't think we think enough about. And we're just having to come to reckon with that with the semiconductor shortage right now that you can't just imagine an increase in computing power and increase in memory. You've actually got to carve it uh, onto silicon in, in billions and billions of tiny transistors. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you're an assistant professor at the Fletcher School, which I associate with uh, diplomacy and government. And that seems like another sort of like fascinating dynamic here, which is like, Maybe it's, it feels, again, or maybe it goes in cycles, but this appreciation, and you sort of said it for your last point about U.S.-China, like that this particular industry is sort of inseparable from thinking about how governments uh, relate to each other. That's right. It's, it's, it's crucial for, for military systems, for example. It's crucial for controlling computing power 
uh, in the future, and it's been a, a prominent tool of, of of geopolitics for the past uh, three quarters of a century. And I think we're we're seeing that more to the fore today. But in fact, when you look at the history of lithography and of semiconductors more generally, you find that it's constantly been uh, something that governments have thought about in, in political terms as well as in economic terms, and constantly been uh, an area of dispute between different governments as they tried to vie for a bigger chunk of the, the semiconductor ecosystem. Chris Miller, thank you so much for coming on. That was the uh, the ASML episode. We needed to do it, and you are the perfect guest for it. And I just learned a lot. So uh, thank you so much for coming on Knoblox. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks, Chris. That was so interesting. Obviously, I loved that conversation. And, you know, I sort of interrupted like seven minutes in because like this idea of like thinking of like a component as in itself a supply chain story, like the idea that really the breakthrough is how do you coordinate 4000 different suppliers of the, of highly specific raw materials and machines into one thing that forms a cohesive whole. The idea that that is what the thing is, is uh, pretty fascinating to me. Here's the important question, which is what, like, what idea did you get out of that conversation for the next semiconductor episode? Because I'm Ooh. sure there is one. What is the next one? <laughs> no, we, we, we got to the end. No, it would be like really interesting, actually. Okay, so like, for, in all seriousness, like, I would like to learn more about that process like the actual like yeah the coordination the heart it's almost like you think of like a conductor of an orchestra is sort of mm -hmm. like the mental model i use for a company that has to like have four thousand parts all coming together to form 31 units or 395 units or whatever it mm -hmm. is like thinking about like the, how do you do that from like a management perspective even beyond the sort of tech perspective is like a super fascinating thing to uh explore especially yeah. at a you know especially right now I mean, this is almost verging on state secrets, but we got to get, you know, we have to try to get the ASML supply chain manager on Oddlot. So, you know, ASML, hit us up. We're interested in how you're doing it. Um, and we have to keep the semiconductor series going. Yeah, no, that, that was fascinating. And um, Chris was the uh, Chris was the perfect guest for that one. Yeah, definitely. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. All right, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Chris Miller. He has a book coming out next year on the chip industry, assistant professor at the Fletcher School. He is at CRMiller1. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.
Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.